Hypertime, the Hypertime 2 podcast. I am your host, Josh Miller, and I am bringing you a new episode after what feels like forever, because last time I recorded was, I think, November or maybe December. I don't really remember. Um, it's been a while. Um, and this one is one I've been brewing uh, for quite a while, only to find out when I came to record it that I don't know if I didn't save it. I don't know if something got corrupted, but there was a good chunk of my notes gone on this episode. And instead of going back and redoing it all because I do not have that time, I decided to just run with what I have. And hopefully it's interesting enough that if you guys care at all about it, hopefully you'll want to do your own research on it because it's... A pretty important event. Uh, not necessarily in the world of comics, but just... Especially pertaining to, like, U.S. laws and stuff. Um, it's not DC, it's not Marvel, not Image, nothing like that. Um, this is actually a underground comic that uh, was quickly snatched up and cancelled um, after it got into some legal battles with... The behemoth that is Disney. For anyone who does not know, um, we are discussing the Air Pirate Funnies, which will result in this episode being explicit uh, somewhat. I usually try my best to keep things uh, relatively PG, um, but in this episode, just as a heads up for who you may be listening to this with, there could be some more rated R mature whatever uh, content here because the thing that brought a lawsuit uh, to these underground artists was certain things that they were depicting in their comic regarding uh, Mickey and Minnie Mouse especially. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting topic. It's kind of surprising uh, how long it took because I don't know if it's still to this day. It was like the longest running lawsuit or court case or something like that that went on like 13 years or something like that uh, from start to finish and Disney didn't win everything surprisingly um, but it's very much a story where you feel good about someone kind of taking it to the man if you're into that sort of stuff um, so yeah I hope you guys enjoy as much as I liked learning about it because while I had seen the image of Mickey and Minnie several times um, on the internet. I never really knew the story behind it. Uh, so that's kind of what led me to wanting to research it. And it's fascinating. It is so fascinating. And the people behind it are <laughs> funny. Some went on to do other things. Um, the, Bobby London is someone I mentioned on the Popeye episode. Who went on to do Popeye comics. There's another guy who went on, I believe, to do... Uh, work at, like, Atari, I think it is, uh, some sort of video game, uh, one of the video game companies in the 80s, um, Ted Richards. But yeah, it's super fascinating, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I had uh, researching it. I just 
wish all of my research notes were still here. Um, so this episode may be on the shorter side, but I like to think it'll still be good. Uh, so with that, let's get it going. You can't have more fun than drawing pictures and pissing people off. It's, uh, it's way better than passive aggression. It's just plain aggression. <laughs> so everything begins with a man named Dan O'Neill. Um, he began making waves through satirical cartoons, most notably one called Odd Bodkins. Um, that's B-O-D-K-I-N-S. Um, and this was during the 60s in the San Francisco Chronicle. And it was a cartoon that was so successful, it found itself spread through uh, the LA Times, Chicago Daily News, the Washington Post, and much more. Odd Bodkins was often critiquing counterculture during that time, but would eventually start leaning towards being more and more political. Um, although the newspaper eventually canceled the strip multiple times, along with firing Dan O'Neill, readers were very vocal about how well-loved this cartoon was, and it would end up returning over and over again. The Chronicle owned the copyright to Odd Bodkins, so Dan decided he was going to take like this weird maneuver to get those rights transferred back to him. He basically wanted to stir up controversy um, that would be associated with him to the point where the Chronicle wouldn't want any association with Dan O'Neill anymore, uh, which would result in them basically giving the rights to Odd Bodkins back to him so they weren't publishing something with his name attached to it. So, you know, you're in the 60s, you're in the 70s, who else are you going to go up against except one of the biggest corporations in the world, Disney? And so that's who Dan decided he was going to try and rile up um, in hopes to get the rights to Odd Bodkins back. But he wasn't just doing it for Odd Bodkins. He also wanted to try and like, make waves in general. He wanted to strike out at a symbol that would define the way the world was becoming. Mickey Mouse was his target. Um... To him, Mickey Mouse used to be like this scrappy um, character who felt like a regular person. But then, like, as time progressed, he became more of like the soft corporate mascot. Um, Disney morphed him from being a regular average Joe person, or I guess in this case, Mouse, into a corporate shill. And that was something that Dan O'Neill was not thrilled with, especially at a time where... You know, you were going to the Vietnam War and all of this other stuff, and he just, you know, 60s and 70s, he seems very much, if you've heard anything, if you've seen him, he very much seems like one of those, I mean, he's a counterculture guy, he will go against the grain, um, and this was his way of doing it. Ted Richards kind of explained why Dan set his sights on Disney and Mickey in particular. Um, and Ted, we'll get into it, he was one of the fellow members of the Air Pirates that would um, come about from Dan doing all this. And Ted Richards says the following. Disney was the right target for that period for what was happening. The challenge against American culture and values and what got us into the Vietnam War and that mindset, that mentality, and Disney perpetuated that way of thinking. So I had all the underground dope players of the 60s all around. So they didn't know anything about copyright. I mean, that's Mickey Mouse, but everybody knows that's not Mickey Mouse, because Mickey Mouse wouldn't do that. 
But why go after Mickey? Why did you? Well, because Mickey, I would have gone after Popeye. I would have gone after Little Lulu. I would have gone after anybody who was paranoid enough to attack everybody on site. It wasn't about Mickey Mouse. It was about that Disney sued everybody for just looking at him. So Dan O'Neill decided that they would become underground cartoonists. They set up in a warehouse. Uh, Dan actually worked for Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and this was like in a warehouse that Francis had been renting at the time. Um, and then him, along with Gary Hallgren, Bobby London, Sherry Flanagan, and Ted Richards, they would start working together to form this comic to basically give the middle finger to Disney, to the man, specifically Mickey. Uh, he had found his gang, and with Mickey as the one they were going to attack, they took their name from an old Mickey Mouse protagonist from the 1930s, the Air Pirates. So all they did originally was try to perfect their craft, uh, the same way that Disney did. They would use a cochlear pin and a brush, and that's how they all learned to draw. They all gathered around each other and used others for inspiration, to try and, like, get that style down. And they were teaching each other and everything. It was, like, a true group of artists working together with a goal of just, just sticking it to them to just make a message for not just other people but to Disney and everything. And so in 1971, the Air Pirates released two comics that satirized Disney in both Air Pirates Funnies number 1 and number 2, and they were selling for... A uh, very tough 50 cents each. Dan wanted, and I'm not entirely sure if they ended up doing it, he wanted to have winos dress up as police officers and distribute these comics throughout San Francisco. They wanted to put them in airports, uh, train stations, just out on the streets, everything. Um, but they needed something bigger to draw everyone's attention, especially Disney's, because it just wasn't getting as high up as they wanted. And so they ended up running into a lucky break on that regard. Uh, Dan O'Neill had a lawyer named Mike Kennedy, and one of his dinners involved many of his clients, but there was one of Mike's clients that was the most important. It was there that Dan would run into the son of the chairman of the board at Disney, but... This guy didn't actually work at Disney. Instead, he worked at a bookstore in San Francisco. And the reason he did that is because he was gay. And Disney didn't want him involved in the higher-up things because, again, this is the early 70s. They didn't want a gay guy there in the offices. So, you know, he got stuck regulating a bookstore. And Dan used this opportunity to provide the comic of the Air Funnies to this guy who in turn would end up taking it back to the board of directors over at Disney. And that, that is what got Disney's attention. And from there on, the battle ensued between these underground comics who were scraping by on pennies to one of the biggest corporations in the world. Um, and to quote Dan O'Neill, he said, We called them out. I mean, why have a fight if no one comes? We're in there for nine months and we produced about 17 comic books. We're doing parody, we're doing satire, trying to get busted. It was basically smut and Mickey going down on Minnie. And if I did it the other way around, nobody would have noticed. But 
actually a woman saying me first. This was big news in 1971. Walt Disney Productions filed the first paperwork in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California on October 21st, 1971. The charges against the Air Pirates were copyright infringement, trademark infringement, unfair competition, intentional interference with business, and trade disparagement through the wrongful use of its characters. Disney used how family-centric, innocent, and wholesome their characters were as a defense, while stating how the Air Pirates' depiction of said characters could harm the Disney business. Disney wanted $100,000 from each defendant, which was... Actually, there was only four of them. Sherry Flanagan, for whatever reason, was not part of the lawsuit. So they wanted $100,000 from the other four in punitive damages. Uh, they wanted to give Disney the remaining copies that they had of the area pirate funding issues. Um, $5,000 for each copyright infringement, all proceeds that Air Pirates had accumulated, and have the Air Pirates pay for the attorney fees. A couple weeks later, the court would ultimately put a short restraining order on the Air Pirates from publishing more comics. This would go until Disney held their motion for a preliminary injunction under Judge Albert C. Wallenberg on March 10, 1972. Judge Wallenberg had been a graduate of UC Berkeley and its law school, Bolt Hall. In 1947, he became a Superior Court Judge, and President Eisenhower would follow it up by having him on the federal bench in 1958. The day before said hearing, the defendants would hold a press conference in hopes to rally support for the cause of, The line belongs to us. If it ends up a mouse, it's still a line. We have absolute freedom to copy anything as long as we add to it. So it sounds like the pirates weren't really taking things seriously, and they are having both a bit of fun with how they were dressed and admitting that they were guilty while their lawyers tried to prevent them from saying stuff like that out loud. Um, one of the examples that Dan O'Neill had in terms of uh, just kind of how lackluster his whole approach to court cases were is that, like, I guess his first appearance, he basically dressed up, I wouldn't really say cowboy, but he had, like, more of the cowboy appearance. Like, he had a cowboy hat, he had, like, a denim jacket on, and had a holster and everything, and he, I guess he walked through the Supreme Court doors and basically got jumped by one of the officers in the front front area, and <laughs> he basically had a banana or something in his holster and it ended up falling out. Um, so yeah, I'm just, the guy was a goof, um, and he was kind of showing everyone how serious he was taking it, while still basically getting the message out that we're doing a parody. And I guess at this time, parodies hadn't really been established very strongly. And you could argue that because of them, parodies are what they are now. If it wasn't for them, that things nowadays would be much different in terms of the parody front. Um, comedy would be much different. A lot of it seems to stem back from the Air Pirate Funnies. And what they were doing there. And I guess I'll put this on the website if I can get Alan to agree to it. But the Air Pirate Funnies it was basically just kind of like their own um, <laughs> their own story about Mickey and Minnie. Um, the so-called nephews that they always had wasn't really their nephews. It was actually their children. And... Their children were trying to get Mickey and Minnie back together, essentially, because I guess at some point they had divorced or they had separated or something. Um, sorry, it's been a while since I went over that full story. And 
So what the nephews or children ended up doing was that they ended up um, gathering all of the antagonists from Mickey's past to basically kidnap them and force them to get together. And so they ended up kidnapping each other. They pretended that the nephews or the children were in danger. And the only way they could do it is if they were to talk out their differences or whatever and get that all figured out. And so kidnapped them, stuffed them in a room. And while they were in that room, they did um, many things to each other on the more sexual front. Um, And they were very uh, visual in the comic. Um, So you could see certain body parts that normally would not be seen on Mickey and Minnie. Um, They were doing things to each other that you would not expect them to do in a uh, Disney production. And I guess it was that sort of thing that really caught Disney's attention. Because Mickey, uh, using his tongue for Minnie's pleasure, was not something they wanted other people to associate with Disney. Uh, They didn't want to show Mickey's very large erection, (laughs) which they did in the comics, too. So it's that kind of stuff that they were putting in the Air Pirate Funnies. They were having fun with the characters while also very much doing it as a way to get a rise from the company itself. But as this whole thing shows is that you could not do that back then. And we'll kind of, well, let's just get more into it. But basically, the Air Pirate Funnies was that kind of stuff that they were going out there and uh, trying to get Disney to notice. The plot was that this was a very dissolute Hollywood star-type mouse, and he and Minnie had had an affair which produced two nephews, so-called nephews. And uh, so they were kidnapped by their nephews, and by all their hired, the nephews had hired the old villains to kidnap mom and dad and get them to the island and get them loaded and get them and give them a Calvinistic guilt reaction and make them marry each other so the kids would not be nephews anymore so they'd be the legitimate son and daughter of Mickey Mouse, Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. So I think what it was is when in the, they started having sex in the jail hold. And, you know, the whole, and there they were in the jail cell and that kind of really got them going. So, showing up for the case, O'Neill... Okay, yeah, I had this here. He dressed up in his Jack Palance uh, Shane outfit, which included a gun holster. He made sure people could see it, so when he came to the elevator on his way to the courtroom, the U.S. Marshal jumped him, only to find a banana in it. Uh, The defense during the trial was sprucing up the meaning of the parodies themselves. On one hand, such as the Zeke Wolf by Ted Richards... He would say how Disney would often treat Southern whites as vicious and ignorant simpletons with nothing to do but commit crimes. And comparing the three pigs to the people exploiting them, banks, media, and the military. They also trumpeted just the idea of being parody, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, parodists um, in general, and that the only way to get a parody across is to make sure the reference is being attributed to must be 100% clear and obvious. They also point out that the copyrights only work when it comes to the work as a whole, not individual characters, which is what they were using. Because of this, they would use the fair use doctrine in their defense, which allowed them to reproduce limited copyrighted material in certain situations. Everything else, other than the characters, were creations that the Air Pirates had done, not Disney. Disney didn't write the dialogue. They didn't use the themes or the plot. Everything other than the characters themselves were all the Air Pirates... And they made it as an original work. 
you couldn't criticize anybody because if you drew a mouse and it didn't look like what, you know, uh, the so-called parody version, parody had been weakened to the point where it, it loses its shock. If, if, it, if I want to draw a Ronald Reagan and I'm forced to draw somebody that looks like something else, well, then it's not him. So nobody gets the joke. Who's that guy that almost looks like somebody I know and what's he saying? The joke just goes to pieces. Parody means, to me, that you get the exact image and you turn it inside out, 100%, 180 degrees. You turn it inside out, wow, that's what I did. Because anybody with half a brain knows that Mickey Mouse wouldn't do this. They also tried to argue in court that Disney's capital was not threatened, nor were the air pirates trying to fool customers thinking it was a Disney-produced comic. They weren't putting the comics in toy stores or easily accessible locations for kids. They were selling them where adults would find them. Lastly, they tried to illustrate how the whole thing was against the First Amendment. Mickey was a larger-than-life character at this point, and known worldwide. They would compare him to folk tales, some of which Disney themselves have used for their own profit, such as The Wolf and the Pig, and that they can't take ownership of stories that have existed long before a company's existence. O'Neill wrote an affidavit to get his point across. Disney presented Mickey Mouse to us when we were children. As cartoonists and adults, we approached Mickey Mouse as our major American mythology. I chose to parody exactly the style of drawing and the characters to evoke the response created by Disney. My purpose in using the mouse as a character is not to destroy the Disney product, but to deal with the image and the American consciousness that the Disney image implanted. At the end of it, though, Disney would win out. He would be convicted multiple times over, resulting in a $195,000 fine, a year in prison, and lawyer fees that would cost another $10 million. The summary judgment telling them to no longer publish comic books made the other air pirates too threatened to keep fighting. Except for Ted Richards, who actually stood by Dan's side throughout the entire thing. While the others would be scared, Dan took it upon himself to get more into his army. He was out on the East Coast having artists there to support his cause. There was some victory there. It opened up the door that you could do a one-time direct parody. Before that, it was like you had to do like Mickey Rat, you know, Mickey Moose or, you know. What we were able to break through with is that a parody can use the actual materials. Prior to all of this, the only parodies allowed were by making changes to the characters. But this would all allow one parody being allowed using the real character. The limitation there being that one could li quite literally only mean one. So if you make a comic featuring Donald Duck, even if it's one image and you print 5,000 copies of that one image, you would have to destroy 4,999 of those. You could only keep one of those, even if it's the same thing. So that one image, that one piece of paper that has that image on it would be legal. The other 4,999 of them would be illegal. So Dan found a way around that as well. The court says you can print 25,000 copies. You have to tear them all up except one. So I can make one mouse work. They said yes. So I went out and I got 10,000 artists to make one mouse work. He communicated this message to every artist he could find. They were all allowed to do one work with Mickey Mouse in it. And then Dan would use his one work to help spread the message. And in turn, spread each and every one of the other artist work around the country too. 
However, to protect the artist, they were signed with numbers instead of their names. The numbers represented their place in the MLF, the Mouse Liberation Front, and each artist would receive a card confirming their place in the group and the number associated with their work. Each artist would also receive a welcoming message, including the ultimate goal, and would lead them there through the use of Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Part of the message included this. We were not, unfortunately, surprised at the court's decision. It's taken the court over 200 years to discover Negroes are people, and they're only half sure about women. And they've never heard of Indians, so how can we expect them to understand mice? No hard feelings here. We're slow learners, too. But even slow learners learn eventually. So there is hope. So that specific comic uh, that they put out to all of these artists to kind of give them an idea of what they were doing, um, I do have an image of that. I will put it on VGU.TV. Um, I will also post it over on the HyperTime Twitter account as well. Um, so check that out because it's, it's pretty cool. That MLF message would then lead to another case Disney would use against O'Neill. They would hold him in contempt of court, a felony, on May 2nd, 1979. He would have Judge Wallenberg to see the case, and he made Disney aware that O'Neill gets to use the First Amendment as a defense since it's a felony. However, there was one thing that Wallenberg had said that really stuck with Dan O'Neill. The judge was Wallenberg, and he was the last judge appointed by Roosevelt. And he says to Disney, well, you have him in here on felony contempt of the Supreme Court. Now that it's a felony, he gets a quick and speedy trial. And he gets to bring in the First Amendment as a defense, which he was unable to do under civil law. And then what he said next is the most important thing I ever heard about the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. He says, to discuss the First Amendment is to weaken it. Dan would eventually win that case. His argument was essentially, freedom of speech leads people to speak on things that they are told not to. You tell them they can't draw Mickey Mouse, well guess what? People are going to draw Mickey Mouse. You tell them that they can, then where's the fun in that? This isn't piracy, it's parody. And they are two completely different things. So Disney would lose, but they made sure that Dan O'Neill wouldn't draw and publish any more works with their beloved mouse. And so, at that point, everything was said and done. Uh, Dan would no longer pursue Mickey, except unless, I guess, you interview him and he'll draw uh, Mickey going down on Minnie uh, for the interviewer. I guess he just mainly, like, plays banjo and other music, still draws and all that stuff. He did a thing where he was trying to get birds to poop on the queen at one point when she was on a boat or something. I don't know. He's one of those characters. It's He seems pretty good. I like him. Yeah, unfortunately, at that point, that's all I have for the episode, really. Um, I do have a few notes of random trivia. But, yeah, like I said, I had so much more on this, and I don't, I don't know what ended up happening. As much time as I put into this, I am so disheartened that <laughs> I lost so much. Um, but at this point, I'm just like, let's get it out of here. I think it's an interesting topic. Hopefully everyone else has learned about this now. Um, I didn't know about it before. I really checked in what that image was I had seen over and over again. But yeah, so random trivia. I just have a couple things here. So, as I mentioned, the lawsuits that came up from this ended up resulting in the longest-running court cases for legal copyrights in history. 
I do think it was roughly like 10 to 13 years. Um, I, for whatever reason, didn't put them down here. Um, but yeah, it was basically that time frame, 10, 13 years, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. And so just remember that a lot of this stemmed from O'Neill wanting to gain the rights of his strip Odd Bodkins back, and it worked. <laughs> he got his wish. Uh, during the court cases in 1972, the Chronicle would actually transfer those rights of Odd Bodkins back over to O'Neill. So at least on that front, he won, <laughs> which I guess is one of the small victories he got from the whole thing. And so the last thing here was also kind of interesting. Um, I tried to find more on this and couldn't outside of the same uh, regurgitated few sentences. So I don't know how true this is. But supposedly, Dan O'Neill would go to sue Disney several times. Um, sorry. He would go on to sue Disney several years later over who framed Roger Rabbit. During his time with the underground comic The Realist, he wrote a drug-dealing rabbit named Roger, which was also reprinted in The Tortoise and the Hare, which was published by Last Gasp in 1971. Lawsuit was dropped, but I guess he was just one additional finger he was trying to give to Disney by being like, well, I created a rabbit too. His name was Roger, and he also did drugs and <laughs> or whatever. Like, I don't know. I think he was just... Having fun at Disney's expense there, but yeah, assuming that was real again, but yeah, as I said, the Air Pirates thing, super fascinating, and I didn't realize something like this had happened in the past, but technically it falls under comics in a way, uh, so I did want to kind of mention it here, I thought it was... I thought it was cool. There's not very many interviews and stuff with Dan online. Um, there is a like 20 minute documentary that will be in the sources as well, um, along with a few interviews. Um, I am going to interstitch some of the audio from those in this episode to kind of kind of add a little bit more to it since I was uh, <laughs> so hurt by my lost information, but if you do want to learn more, there is a book out there that was published, um, I don't know, it's like 20 years ago, um, it's called The Pirates and the Mouse by Bob Levin, um, you should find that, it's very detailed, has images in there from like the MLF, uh, some of the artwork done there, which I will also post over on VGU in the Twitter account, but yeah, super Super interesting topic that I really wish um, I could find a lot more about. But uh, with that, yeah, let's go ahead and get into the outro. We started off with a hopeless condition and, and see what we can do with that. I mean, as long as it was hopeless, why not? If you're going down in flames, hit something big. So if you like what you hear, please spread the word of the podcast. Rate, review, wherever you listen to it at. But most importantly, just kind of share it with your friends. Any people online you might know that might like it. Um, spread the word on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's what helps the podcast grow. Um, I don't think the <laughs> like rating and stuff on, uh, on the podcast services do as much as people think. But could be wrong. I don't know. You can follow Hypertime over at Twitter at HypertimePod. Um, if you have questions or topic suggestions let me know we do have other stuff you can check out if you're interested especially in video games even though we kind of do stuff with like music and stuff uh, movies whatnot as well 
Um, and we're going kind of, I specifically am trying to branch out a little bit um, in the future, so stay tuned there. Uh, but you can check us all out at vgu.tv. Um, we do have a VGU Twitter as well, at VGU underscore TV. And then there is a few podcasts you can check out as well, such as Players Club and Win, which is our week in news. Um, and Win also has a Twitter account you can follow at VGU Win Pod. Check out all of what we do over at YouTube, which I think we I will try to focus on a lot more this year. Um, that YouTube account is VGUTV. Um, there are uh, multiple accounts from our past, which are out there. Um, check out anything that is most recent, and that will be us. So like and subscribe to us there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter account is jmillie 99 Alan has a Twitter as well you can check out. Um, that is the Alan Mirror. That is T-H-E-A-L-L-A-N-M-U-I-R. But yeah, check us out. Follow us everywhere you can. Um, spread the word. And I hope you all take care. Um, it's been it's been rough recently. Um, for I think everybody. So, hopefully anyone listening to this is doing better <laughs> than what we're doing. And if not, hang in there. Just hang in there the best you can. And that's what we're trying to do. But yeah, with that, I will see you further down the hyper time. Hope you all take care. Bye. This has been a VGU.TV production. For all of the hottest hot takes and other opinions on video games, music, and a lot more, tune in to VGU.TV.